My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. We're in a new room, lots of new people, same Bible, and I get to preach. Come on. It's going to be a good morning. Six people are excited. A few people are terrified. That's typical of the response that I have on large crowds of people. Today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and get them open. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Paul, a church planter, a pastor, an early church leader. And we're going to be looking at his prayer for this new church in Colossae. And as we look at his prayer for this church and this new Christians, we're going to discover his heart and his hope for these people and for this church. And before I jump into the text, I want to ask you guys a question. Uh, as Christians, have any of you guys ever prayed for other Christians? I think oftentimes we think it's good and right to maybe pray for non-Christians that they would come to know Christ. But I also want to let you know it's good and God-honoring and Paul models for us that it is more than okay to look around the room and say, I want to pray for people in the family of God. I want to ask you if you've ever prayed for your maybe son or daughter. Have you prayed for your spouse? Have you prayed for a coworker? Maybe that's going through a hard time or maybe somebody in your city group. Somebody who's already said yes to Jesus, and yet you're going to the Lord and you're saying, God, would you protect them? Would you sustain them? Would you heal them? Would you empower them? Would you provide for them? God, would you protect them from evil? God, would you do in their life what I know I cannot do on my own for them? That's why we pray for other Christians. I want to ask you guys if you guys fully understand why it's good and God-honoring to pray for other Christians. And let me just remind you some of the brief theology behind why I think Paul prays for this church and why we, 2,000 years ago, as Christ, or 2,000 years later, as Christians are still praying for one another. I think that all of the Christian life is dependent on God. And Willie just talked about this. You guys know that you can bring your non-Christian friends here and you can get them around me and I have these skinny jeans on and I can get really excited about Jesus and there's no spiritual power in that. Like we can get excited and get hyped up, but you can't make your friends come to love Jesus Christ with slick theological arguments or fun religious gatherings or peppy music. God has to break in and help people see the full extent of their sin to see Jesus Christ as a solution and to help them transfer their trust from themselves into the Jesus Christ. God has to do that work, amen? He has to soften a hardened heart. I believe it's 100% possible with the right coaching and the right life skills to help somebody move from bad to good. We've seen that story. But I think it's 100% impossible apart from the saving work of God to move from spiritually dead to spiritually alive in Jesus Christ. We are dependent on God to break into people's lives. But that's not just to come to know Christ. But after you come to know Christ... You don't just plug into the right church, make the right friends, and hang out in the right ministry programs and start to grow in Christ-likeness. Do you understand your own sanctification, the, own, uh, your, the ability to change and transform in your life is not something that happens just because you get around the right people. It's the Spirit of God working in your life to literally change and transform you from the inside out. He gives you knowledge, He gives you a new spirit, and He begins to work in your life in amazing ways. And so we believe that all of the Christian life is dependent on God. Now, here's what that means. That doesn't just mean that you sit back and wait for God to do the impossible. That doesn't make us spiritually passive people. That makes us bold in our prayers because we believe that God answers prayers and hears prayers. Here's why we uh, value prayer so much, especially here at this church. One is because Jesus did. Do you guys remember Jesus and the 11 disciples? Right before he goes to the cross, he doesn't give the 11 remaining disciples another pep talk. He doesn't give them another sermon. He doesn't give them another miracle. He simply pulls them aside and he does what's incredibly loving. He says, let me pray for you. 
Then the church blows up after Christ goes to the cross, raises from the grave. Spirit of, of God empowers the disciples to preach boldly. All of a sudden, there's thousands of Christians. The early church is exploding. There's a movement of God happening. And uh, the early church leaders were getting pulled in a million directions. Hey, come to this fundraiser. Come be a part of this cause. Hey, come champion this thing. Hey, we need your help feeding the orphans. Hey, we need your help over here. And there was lots of good things they could give their time to. And they said, listen, guys, we've discovered the most powerful thing we can do is one, preach the word of God. And two, do you know what the other most powerful ministry they wanted to give themselves to? Prayer. Praying that God would move in their midst. Praying that God would work in their church. Praying that God would move in their city. They said, we've got to give ourselves to the preaching of the word and prayer. Now you're like, okay, that's cool. Jesus did it. Some pastors a long time ago did it. What's that got to do with me? Well, James chapter 5 says that we as God's people, he says we as God's people are commanded to pray for one another. Well, why? Because he says your prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Again, he's saying this is not just something that Jesus did, that former church leaders did, but this is something that the church family, we as God's people, should love each other enough to labor for one another in prayer. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been prayed for by Christians. It's a powerful thing when somebody pulls you in and says, listen, I love you enough to go to the Father and labor with you in prayer. And that's where uh, Paul is today. He cares about this church He sees that they've responded to the gospel. He understands that they're Christians and they know Jesus. And yet he knows that the road is long and it's bumpy. And he understands there's trials and temptations in front of this young church. He understands that they live in the same world that we do. And there's people who believe very differently about Jesus than we do and they did. And so he's saying, listen, there's a lot of threats, a lot of distractions to this early church. And so he's going to hit his knees. He's going to pray for God's people. Now, the question uh, for many of you guys is, why does this matter to us? Why does this matter to us? Well, I want us to study this prayer today, these five verses, and see Paul's heart and his hope for this church. Not so we can just gain some new theological insights, but I really want us to understand how is it that we as parents should be praying for our children? How is it that we've got Christian friends? How do we pray for them when they're going through seasons of trial? What is it that we're asking God to do in our spouse's life? What is it that we're asking God to do in people in our city group's life? What does it look like to pray in a way that is good and God-honoring? And I think Paul serves as a model and as an example to us and is quite shocking some of the things that he asked God to do in and through this church. And so I want us to learn. So I've got three observations. You can follow along in your notes, your programs, whatever we call them. Uh, If you're a note taker, take those out. You can follow along with me on the screen. The first thing is this. Pray that they may know God's will and do God's work. The first thing that Paul's going to say is there's going to be a connection between knowing and doing. There's going to be a connection in the Christian's life and all of our lives between believing something about Jesus and then behaving in a certain way. He's saying, I want you to be saturated with who God is. And then I want you to understand that that knowledge doesn't just become stale in your life, but instead it activates your life and impacts every arena of your life. And so let me show you guys this in verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. Here's what he says. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. How powerful. Paul loves these people. He cares about these people. And his his love for his people have translated into a desire to pray, God, would you do a work in and through them? Here's his prayer. Asking that you may be filled, okay, catch this, with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Okay, so what's Paul praying for? He's not praying, asking that God would do something through them in big ways. He's asking that they would grasp something. 
Notice the trifecta of intellect here. He's saying, I want you to be filled with knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And what does he want them to know? He wants them to know God's will. Now, when I did college ministry, I loved this conversation. What's God's will on my life? Who should I marry? And what career should I go into? And where should I live? And how many kids should I have someday? What is God's will? Listen, that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about your specific narrow will for your life. God has very little to say about that and a lot to say about his general will, which is that from the beginning, God created us. We sinned against him. And since that moment, he's been on a mission to pursue broken, fallen people. Mainly his will is to call sinful, broken people back into right relationship with him. His will and his plan is a one of redemption. His will and his plan mainly finds its climax in the personal work of Jesus Christ who said, I came to seek and save the lost. He's praying, Paul is praying, would you church be God-centered people? Would you church... Get that you have a holy and righteous and amazing God that created you in his image and that he loves you enough to spare no expense to pursue you. Would you know that God has not, not, uh, he's not resisted traveling any length. He's literally left heaven and come to earth and sent his only son so that you could be brought back in relationship with him. He's saying, church, I want you to be a people who understand who God is and what he's done for you. And he's not just praying this prayer so that you can memorize some verses and look smart and understand smart doc- and right doctrine. He's praying that he understands that in front of them is a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus. A lot of people who believe that there's different ways to heaven. A lot of people who got college professors that wouldn't affirm their faith. These Christians live in the very same world that we live in. Not everybody is going to high five that they came to know Christ. They've got real haters. And he's saying, I would, I'm praying that you would be so enthralled, so saturated, so deep in your understanding of the truth of the gospel, that you would remain steadfast in the gospel, that you would not waver in the gospel, that you would discern truth of the gospel from any other voices and views out there. But he's also going to say that the goal isn't just to know, but that the knowing is going to transition into doing, that the believing would transition into the behaving. Let me show you guys this in verse 10. He says, so as you've been filled with the knowledge of God, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I love this. So he's saying, is this a passive thing? When you walk, look at all this room I got on this stage. Can we just praise the Lord Jesus Christ? Can we just praise him? Because on the other stage, they had me caged up like a little animal, like right here. But look at the cameraman. I'm making him nervous. He can't even follow me right now because I'm walking. Now, walking is an active thing. It's not a passive thing. So when you know something about Jesus, you might think to yourself, the scorecard in Christianity is just for you to intellectually grasp who God is and be able to pass a theology exam. Maybe you think that the goal of Christianity is to show up on Sunday mornings for an hour to sing some songs for you to mark up your Bibles a little bit. But he's saying that your whole life would be lived in a way that is pleasing, honoring the Lord. That your knowing would impact your character and your conduct of your life. He's saying that there would be no difference between what you do on Sunday morning and what you do on Saturday night. Isn't that amazing? He's saying our understanding of the gospel is going to begin to transition our life. Now, two things that hit me when I read this text. The first is the aim. How does the gospel impact and reorient the aim of your life? He says that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him in every area of our life. And I, I hit that word pleasing, and the Holy Spirit was just 
speaking to me through this word. So I got a word and maybe it was for me, but maybe it's for you. So let me just confess to you that so much of my life has been lived not pleasing to the Lord, but pleasing to me. You know, the default God in your life is you and you become the biggest thing and you think your appetites and your cravings and your desires become the biggest thing. And when you live for you, pleasing to you, you live for a very small, shallow, temporary God. Some of y'all looking like I'm the only one. Oh, my goodness. Lord knows. He knows. Now, listen, the other thing that we oftentimes live for is not just the pleasing of ourselves, but the pleasing of other people, right? I'm going to make the goal and aim of my life to please my parents, my coaches, my spouses, my kids, the people who I think are important because I want to climb the social ladder, so I've got to impress them. That becomes my goal. I want to talk in a way, dress in a way, live in a way that impresses other people. I want to pretend that I'm more than I am. And to do that, I'm even willing to compromise my faith momentarily so that I can impress and so I can please. And Paul is saying, I'm praying that you would know all that Jesus Christ is and know what he is doing so that in every area of your life, you would come back to him and say, it's my aim to please you, the Lord, in my parenting, in my finances, in my stewardship, in my relationships with lost people. It would be my aim to walk out my faith in such a compelling way that I would glorify you. Now, what's amazing about this is this is the new aim of our life, but I believe the gospel gives us new motivation to live this way a new motivation to live this way. Because if I would have read this verse before I knew who Christ was, this is why knowledge of who God is is so important. Because if you don't have the knowledge of who God is, this is going to sound like religious duty. This is going to sound like it's up to you to do some things in your life so you can earn God's love and affection. But the Christian life says you've already got the full love and affection and acceptance of God. And so now now we get to walk in a way not to earn something, but because we already got something. Amen? The motivation stops becoming a duty where you play religious games for God and it starts to become a delight. When you understand that Jesus was the innocent one who literally died for the guilty, when you understand that Jesus came to live the life we never could live and died the death on the cross that we deserve and defeated our true enemies of Satan, sin, and death, and that we have victory in him, that we've been adopted into his family, that his Holy Spirit has flooded our hearts, that we have the hope of eternity because of what he's done, You don't look at God and say, okay, God, I'll give you my Sunday morning and a few dollars in one hour of my week. We come back to him and said, Lord, I trust that your ways are higher than my ways. I trust that your words are higher than my words. I trust that I want to live every area of my life for your glory because I believe that you're going to lead me into the abundant life. I pray that you are going to lead me into joy. I believe you're going to lead me into blessing. And I believe that you're going to lead me into a life that is glorifying to you. And so it's your will be done, not my will be done. Amen. We prayed that prayer. He changes the aim of your life and he changes the motivation of your life because you're not trying to work your way in. You already know you got everything and now you want to please him. It's amazing. It's amazing what God has done. Now, um, I want to press this in a couple ways because what Paul is praying is not a new prayer. He's connecting doing and knowing, knowing and doing. And so Jesus said it like this, Luke 6, 46. This one cuts, scares me still to this day. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not, or, and not do what I tell you? Man, that's tough. And I literally named my son Paxton James Horuska after this verse. Paxton James Horuska, James chapter 1, verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word, not mere, mere hearers only, deceiving yourself. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Why did I name my, same Pax, my son Paxton James Horuska? Because James is a great reminder that my son, by God's grace, is going to be the first Ruska, maybe ever, to be raised up in a Christian home that actually knows the Bible and preaches Jesus Christ. And because of that, he's going to have 
um, the, the joy of hearing the word of God every night, whether he wants to or not. It's not his choice. We're not going to let him figure it out, okay? We're going to teach him. And because of that, I know he's going to know God's word. He'll be saturated with the Bible stories. And my prayer for my son is this verse, that he would be a doer of the word. Because at some point, it has to translate from his head to his heart and to his life. And that's been my hope and my, my heart for my son. Now, some of you guys are here today, and you guys, literally, you're looking at me like, okay, Chris, that sounds good. I want to honor the Lord. I want to be a doer of the word. Uh, and yet, I don't even know the Bible. <laughs> I don't know what it looks like. Um, to honor the Lord in my marriage. I don't know what it looks like to honor the Lord in my sexuality. I don't even know what it looks like to honor the Lord in my finances or my parenting. And, and I want to just say, maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe you just got baptized. Maybe you um, have been around the church a long time, but you've never really taken the opportunity to read Scripture and understand how he gives instructions to different areas of your life. And that's okay. Uh, Paul would call you a baby, and we love babies. Babies are a gift from God. And uh, we celebrate babies. And yet, if you're still carrying around a baby bottle in 10 years, that's a problem, right? He's going to say he's going to invite you to mature in your knowledge of who God is. And, and so let me just encourage you, if that's where you're at, and you're like, man, Chris, I, I don't even know what some of those ways are to honor the Lord. Can you come here, make a commitment to be here Sunday morning and hear the word of God preached so you can grow in your knowledge. And then get around this book and meditate it and study it. And pray through it and ask God to reveal truth and ask God to instruct you in his life. He's like a loving father wants to speak into his son or daughter's life. He will literally not leave you in the dark. He will speak. Now, let me confess to you before you think, okay, that's cool preacher that you want to just like act like I don't have it all together. Let me just confess to you. we got some people from Wayne State who can attest to this where I went to college. That I was in that place where I had zeal for the Lord but did not have knowledge and understanding on how to honor him. Okay? You guys know that's a dangerous combination? Nobody else has been there. That's exciting. You all got saved at four years old. Good for you. Okay. Well, some of us came to know Christ later. And I was 18 in college, and I prayed a heartfelt prayer that I thought was good and God-honoring. I said, Lord, I feel convicted that I've been making out with these non-Christian girls on campus. And since you flooded me with your Holy Spirit, I can tell that that is not right. I don't feel right about it. So I am going to commit from here on out to only making out with Christian girls on this campus. Especially these three girls that I listed by name. And I said, Lord, they're so cute. They're so out of my range that, Lord, if you open up that door, I'm going to take that as your blessing. I'm going to take your, your blessing on my life. And the funny thing is, the Lord actually answered that prayer. Some of y'all look like, oh, man, he really did? Yep. Yeah, it really got that bad. Okay. Now, but because of that, uh, I had some older guys who knew their Bibles, who were on campus, who heard about this young dude who just come to Christ and was making a mess out of things. He was a newborn baby, and you know what babies do. They make messes, and that's where I was at. And they sat me down and said, here's what self-control looks like. Here's how you honor your sisters in Christ. Here's what the difference between love and lust. Here, here's some verses on purity and holiness. And I quoted the one, like, greet them in a holy kiss. They didn't like that. They said that was out of context. So anyways, um, <laughs> we had a little Bible study right there on how to take things in context. So... So all that to say is, man, I get it, man. Like, I get that sometimes we enter into the family of God, and we need to grow in our wisdom and knowledge of who he is. Additionally, though, I've been a Christian now for 15 years and studied the Bible, um, memorized some verses, listened to some sermons, preached some sermons. And so, Christians, if we're there, can we just say we're not off the hook? Because the goal of Christianity, I've learned, is not just to memorize the right stuff and act like we can pass the right theological exams, but literally for us to live out what we know. And I just got convicted this week, like, is there, a, is there a lag time in the Christian's life between knowing and doing? 
Because that's what we call disobedience. And that's not trusting the Lord and his word and his ways. That's instead saying, I, I know that your word is good, but I'm going to play it safe and do things my way. And I just think that this prayer from Paul is he's praying that there would be a connection between knowing and doing and there would be no lag time. Last thing I want to press in is just like you get a picture in this first prayer, this first couple verses of this prayer of Paul praying for these early Christians. And as he's praying for these early Christians, he's praying that they would know Christ and they would walk in ways that would honor him. And I just think, parents, I want to ask us, a lot of us here are parents, how are we praying for our kids? This week I thought about how do I actually regularly pray for my children? A lot of times my prayer is, Lord, help them not go to jail. Like that's a real thing if you know my five-year-old, like kind of violent, a little aggressive. Some of you are laughing because he might have assaulted you on the way in. I don't know. Okay? Email at Gavin Johnson at City Light. No. So... So the reality is that sometimes we pray for our kids, like, God, would you just help them to be smart? Would you help them to get in the right school? Would you help them to make the right kind of friends? Would you help them to to meet the right kind of girl or boy or whoever they need to get married to? And I oftentimes pray, God, would you help provide a spouse that's a Christian, but also super rich so I don't have to pay for the wedding? Lord, would you do it, Jesus? Would you do it by your power? You're praying the same thing. Don't judge. But I just wonder, what if would it look like for us as parents to say, God, we pray for our kids that they would know you and they would follow you in every arena of their life. Amen? I wonder about uh, spouses. You know how many, there's never a more desperate time of prayer in a husband's life than when a woman or his wife walks into Target. Lord, would you bring restraint today, God? Would you hold back no more throw pillows? Please, Lord Jesus, <laughs> let her come home empty-handed, Lord. Would you, Lord, do that work? How do we pray for our spouse? What would it look like for us to be a church that doesn't just complain about our spouse, grumble about our spouse, or ask God to stop allowing our spouse to spend so much money at Target, but instead say, God, thank you for my spouse. Would you do a mighty work in them? Help them to be filled with the knowledge of your grace today that they wouldn't walk in condemnation and shame, but they would walk in freedom. And God, would you bless them today? And would you empower them today to obey you in every arena of their life? Students and singles, what would it look like for us to pray for people in that same way? Paul doesn't just pray that they would know and they would do, but he's going to pray for them to be strengthened to endure because he understands that this kind of Christian living is not natural and we need a power greater than ourselves. So he's going to pray that they would be strengthened and endure. Point two, strengthened and endure. Let me show you guys this a little bit in our text, but just before I get in, let me illustrate why we need to be strengthened to endure. So this week, I have three kids, by the way, a five-year-old son, Paxton, who I've mentioned two-year-old little girl named Lucy, who her favorite thing is chips, which we'll talk about later, uh, and then a one-year-old son, Jude. And Jude is, uh, he was sick this last week. And so when you've got a small baby, a 12-month-old, and he's sick, he's going to make noise anytime he's awake. That's his way of letting you know, I'm not happy, okay? So I come home from work, get on the ground, start to snuggle Jude, try to comfort him. Mom's about to lose her mind. So I'm like, I'll take the screaming baby, okay? Not really like I'll take him, but it was kind of a force thing. Anyways, uh, so we'll take the baby. Now my son Paxton, who's five, saw me on the ground and saw this is the opportunity to sneak attack dad, okay? Now, Greg Brown, who read scripture, um, never let him play with your kids. Now, here's the thing. I love Greg. He's become like family. But he said, hey, um, let me take your kids. You guys need a date day. So I was like, this is awesome. Little did I know he was going to watch Star Wars with my kids for six hours, okay? So... Uh, I dropped off my son as an athletic, handsome young boy, picked him up as a Star Wars nerd. Now, 
I thought he was going to win homecoming king. That, that is out of the equation as of right now. That is not going to happen, okay? He's been running around my house in Star Wars gear for the last month, okay? He's got a little lightsaber. He's got a, a Luke Skywalker outfit. And so I've been Darth Vader for a month, okay? So I'm down. He sees his opportunity. He goes, grabs his lightsaber, his gear. He comes around the corner un- unannounced starts swinging this thing like he's going to save the galaxy. Now I'm taking licks left and right. The baby Jude is freaking out, screaming. Mob's trying to figure out what's going on in the house, okay? Now Paxton in all of this excitement realizes he's got to go to use the restroom. So he runs off. He drops his saber, goes to the restroom. I try to double down my efforts with Jude to get him under control. And there's like this amazing thing as parents with young children called silence. And it lasts about a split second. Next thing I know, I hear Paxton saying, Dad, help me wipe. I got to wipe. Dad, help me. And I said, Jesus, you got to return right this minute. No delay. Get on your white horse and come back right now, Jesus. Now, have you ever been there? Life is filled with chaotic, crazy moments, is it not? Life is exhausting. Life keeps you tired. Life can make you weary. And it's more than five-year-olds with lightsabers, is it not? There's internal battles that have worn me down. Guilt and shame and anxiety and worry and stuff I'm dealing with in here. And then there's external stuff like kids that get sick and marriages that get hard and finances that get tight and kids that get rebellious. And you just, as you endure this Christian life, you've got to understand, Christian, let me just love you enough to tell you, you will not follow Jesus without experiencing pain and suffering. If you thought you were the only one that came in here today with a pain point in your life, you're not alone in that. So many of us in this room are experiencing some level of pain and hurt and sorrow because we're on this side of eternity and there's sin in this fallen, broken world. And Paul gets that. Listen, walking with Jesus is not resort living in Fiji. Walking with Jesus is life on the front lines. You're going to get nicked up. You're going to get nicked up. So what he does is he prays for them that they would have a power that is greater than their circumstances. Let me show you this, verse 11. He says this. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. What's amazing here is Christians, he's not just praying that you would get out of your circumstances, that you would be strengthened to be in whatever circumstances you're in. And I want to just let you know that the great news of the gospel isn't that Jesus has just taken care of your past. We oftentimes know that Jesus died on the cross for our sin in the past. We often know that Jesus died on the cross so we can have heaven in front of us. We've got a future that's secure. But I want you guys to know that the power of the gospel promises you a power in the present. A power in the present. Jesus, not only did he pray for the disciples right before he left, but he promised them the helper, which is the Holy Spirit that would dwell inside of us. The life and the power of Jesus Christ inside of us that would remind us of the gospel, that would empower us when we feel weak, that would bring peace when we feel anxiety, that would give us joy in all circumstances, that would convict us of sin, that would comfort us when we need a comforter. Man, the Holy Spirit is amazing grace for us to walk in, his power. And what Paul is saying is that the goal of the Spirit's power in your life isn't that you would just walk around feeling strong because that's not the goal. The goal is that we would endure the long road of walking with Jesus over a lifetime. And what I believe is the hook phrase here is if you've got your pen out, circle joy. Because I think a lot of you guys are just Midwestern tough enough to uh, grit out a tough marriage, to grit out a hard relationship with a friend, 
to just hold on knuckle-handed to God through some hard seasons. And yet what I know about you is it's impossible to do that in that posture with the spirit of joy. The spirit of joy is one of the greatest witnesses that we have to the watching world. Wait a sec, you're walking through cancer? Wait a sec, your kids aren't all good? And yet you have joy in the presence? How is that? Because, see, the world's joy is oftentimes to their circumstances. The Christian's joy is tied to what Jesus Christ has done and his empowering Holy Spirit in your life. And it's a powerful witness when we suffer well and we endure and when we trust the power of the Holy Spirit on this side of eternity to carry us home. I want to tell you this is one of the reasons it's so powerful for you to remain a part of a multi-generational church. Those of you guys who are 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, I've had the joy of sitting down with some of you guys, and I know your story, filled with just amazing moments of God's grace in your life, and yet filled with moments where you've seen dollars come and go, you've seen jobs come and go, you've seen health come and go, you've seen spouses come and go, you've seen kids get sick, you've seen parents get aged and die, you've buried some people, you've been betrayed by some friends, you've tasted some sorrow on this side of eternity, and yet... You've told your story and said, God has been faithful to sustain me and strengthen me for each and every day. What he started in me, he's being faithful to finish in me. And some of us who are younger in the generation don't just need to look at these folks and say, man, these are the people we go to Denny's with because they get the seniors discount. (laughs) We look at them and say, they are a trophy of God's grace, are they not? That God would be mighty to save them and God would be mighty to sustain them for decade after decade after decade. And it builds my faith knowing that I'm going to limp home to glory by being strengthened by the very spirit of God. The same God that saved me is the same God that will sustain me. And it gives us hope. Amen. I want to press one last thing in as we... Uh, think about how does this apply to our life. Again, we've got a Christian praying for other Christians. And I just want to say, church, instead of pulling people aside and saying, I sympathize with what you're going through, let me give you a word of encouragement. Could we pull them aside and say, let me boldly pray that in whatever circumstance you're walking through, that the Spirit of God would be ministering to you, that he would be a helper to you in your time of need. Would we be so bold to invite people to pray that for us? And would we be so bold to believe that God can do that? And would we be so bold to pray that prayer on the behalf of brothers and sisters in Christ that are in this very room? Final thing that he's going to pray is that we'd be filled with gratitude. Paul, it's almost like he has this lightning bolt moment where he comes to his senses and he's saying, hey, just that I'm praying for this new church, just that I'm praying for these new Christians, is is a sign that God has already miraculously done something. What happens is he transitions from asking God to do more to celebrating what God has already done. He moves from asking God to do something to praising God for what he's already done. Let me show you guys this in verse 12 through 14. He says, giving thanks. May we give thanks to the Father. Okay, there's the gratitude part. Why should we give thanks? Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us. Okay, he's taken us from something. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is Paul moving from praying to praising, overcome by the reality of what God has done for his people. And now he's celebrating, worshiping, exalting this God that has taken people from something and taken us into something. And notice that he says in verse 13, where we all start, he said, I've taken you from the domain of darkness. 
the domain of darkness. Now, this is a humbling diagnosis of where humanity starts apart from a holy and righteous God. Now, this is fun. Y'all ready? Y'all ready for this? Now, listen, why this is so important, because we love as people to draw lines between good people and bad people. We got people like me in high school who used to date the wrong kind of people and do the right, wrong kind of things, and then the right kind of people over here who were honor roll students, got scholarships, sit at the right kind of table, teachers like them. You probably knew where to spell words and put commas. That's very exciting. There's people that recycle, and there's people that don't recycle. People that eat Chick-fil-A, and then everybody else who eats at the non-Christian plate is called Raising Cane's. How could you? Right? People who listen to K-Love, people who listen to pop music even when the kids are in the car. How could you stop judging? Okay? Do we not love to play this game? We love to play this game where we're the good people in the family. We've made the right decision. We went to the right church. We hang out with the right kind of people. We do marriage the right kind of way. And what he's saying is it does not matter. All of your false boxes that you've checked with your false, shallow righteousness, God is not impressed. Before him, you started in the domain of darkness. And so we got it. You're never going to be grateful and be filled with thanksgiving if you thought you earned your way into the kingdom of God because you were so great. But where are you at here? What have you done? He says, you started a place and now you're not in a place, not because you've done something, because somebody else who's greater has done something on your behalf. You started in the domain of darkness. It's a humbling diagnosis of humanity apart from a holy and righteous God's work. And yet, you now have been brought into a kingdom. You've moved from darkness to light. You've moved from an orphan to an adopted son or daughter. You've moved from an outsider to an insider. You've moved from somebody who's guilty to forgiven. What is the thing that has helped you move from A to B? It says it all happened because of the life of the beloved son, Jesus Christ. It says, in whom you have forgiveness and in whom you have redemption. How did you get those things? Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of the story. Jesus is the innocent son of God who came to die for us on our behalf, the guilty people. Jesus is the one who drank in death so we could experience eternal life. Jesus is the creator who stepped into his own creation and was rejected by his very own people so that we could be accepted in right relationship with our God. That's the amazing story that we celebrate. So why do we come here and why does Willie make us raise our hand? Why doesn't he just settle for you guys playing church and singing along some songs? Because it's commanded that we be filled with thanksgiving. And because you're very people who have been spared from the wrath of God and been given entrance into the kingdom of God. And we believe that Jesus Christ did it. And it's not on your meriting or your earning or your performance. But it's primarily based about how this loving God sought and saved you and gave you his very best when you were at your very worst. Can we give him a shout of praise right now? I told y'all, I'm the least likely pastor up in this place, and I'm so sorry. I just yell at y'all and get a little excited. But listen, I I love this, and I think this text has an application. One, in our vertical relationship with God. I just want to ask us as a church, I know this is a new room with new people, and there's a new crowd, and the question is, like, what kind of people are we going to be? And I just think in West Omaha, I'm just going to press into our culture as we're people who oftentimes act like we got it together. We got the cute Christmas card, the nice family. We can impress people with our social media game. And that is the worst posture to be in in front of a holy and righteous God. Can we just come into this place and stop acting like we are a gift to God, but that God is a gift to us? We got to repent from that posture. And we got to be willing to say, I don't care if I look goofy. I'm going to raise my hands. 
Jesus Christ is a gift and he saved my soul. So if the Spirit of God moves me to express myself in worship, then he's worthy. And my thanksgiving to God expresses itself in the worship of God. And I'm not worried about what you think of me. I'm worried about giving honor and glory to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who sought and saved me, who's moved me out of darkness into light. Can we do that in this place? Don't try to play church. Worship Jesus Christ. Additionally, I think for some of us, we're going to get in city groups this year. You're going to have friendships. You're going to meet people. And I love Paul here. You know what happens in the life of the Christian? We get so stale (laughs) that we oftentimes look at brothers and sisters in Christ, and we get frustrated that they're not more mature, that they're not further down the road. We get frustrated they keep making mistakes. We get frustrated they don't know their theology. We're part of city groups, and we're like, that person is really annoying. (laughs) It's okay to laugh. If you don't know who that person is, it might be you. Um, You're like, I never felt that way. Well, don't pull anybody aside and ask. Right? I just think, man, this is Paul looking at a church that's very much in process. They have not arrived, and he's praising God for them. And I think, would you do that for your spouse? Would you praise God for your believing child? Would you praise God for the believing people in your city group? Would you praise God for the believing person sitting next to you? And celebrate that, yes, they're in process, and yet God is working in their life. And because they've already come to the knowledge of their sin and trusted in Christ, they're already a trophy of his grace. Amen? May we not grumble against God's people, but will we celebrate God's grace to seek and save the lost? Last thing I want to say as we close this thing down is I want to continue to ask our church as a way of application that we would be bold enough to ask, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? And your city groups don't just sympathize and encourage people, but would we ask, how can I pray for you? 